0: Given the current climate of our planet, how would you feel if you were told there was an advanced alien race that has set out from their own ruined homeworld to conquer our planet? Would you be afraid? Would you welcome them as friends? Would you even forsake your fellow humans to usher in our own destruction? These are just a few of the things we will explore in The Three-Body Problem. (laughs) (coughs) Sorry about that. Good evening, folks. We have a wonderful evening's entertainment lined up for you. One that will provide several hours of pleasurable relaxation and diversion for you and your family. We hope you will make this a weekly visit. Bring the family. Bring your friends. We hope you have a wonderful time. Come back soon. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Knights of the Pageless Library. We are a little podcast dedicated to reviewing audiobooks. I am Ryan Knight, and I will be your host for this episode. Today we will be taking a look at The Three-Body Problem, written by Chison Liu and narrated by Luke Daniels. This book was translated by Ken Liu. Before I get into the review, I just want to let everyone know that if you have anything at all you would like to contact us about, please send it to KOTPL.pod at gmail.com. The three body problem was written in 2006 and translated to English in 2014. The audiobook I will be reviewing was published by Macmillan Audio in 2014 as well. I listened to this title through Audible, in case anyone was curious, and the price of the book over there is $17.92. And I apologize if I'm saying this incorrectly, I have seen it written both ways of Chessin Liu and Leo Chesson, I'm unfamiliar with the way first and last names are handled uh, anywhere but in the United States, and I do apologize for that. This writer has quite a few novels under his belt on Audible, uh, most of which fall into the sci-fi category. And I do feel comfortable at this point in time saying that after listening to The Three-Body Problem. This is a man who knows sci-fi. But how does Luke Daniels perform during this title? I can say with confidence that Luke Daniels falls on my list of books I will listen to because of the narrator. And his performance in this book is pretty exceptional in my opinion. There is just something about the voice acting in this one that really drives the point home in this book. This book is pretty dark, pretty dreary, and there's also a lot of science and kind of technically boring subjects that are covered in this. The way Luke Daniels performs and the sense of urgency in characters' voices and their demeanor, maybe their fear, it all comes across crystal clear through Luke Daniels' performance. While this story is already a mind-bending and interesting story, I think that Luke Daniels' performance actually takes this one up to the next level. This book does clock in right at 13 hours and 26 minutes, And spoiler alert, you're gonna wish it was actually longer. Now, do I think this book is easy to follow? In many ways, no, I don't think it is. This book opens up very strong, but we do get a lot of time skipping forward and backwards. And I've also read that the beginning of this book was changed for the English translation. English translation. I promise English is my first language. (laughs) Doesn't really sound like it. The events at the beginning of the English translation, I guess, were near the middle of the book originally, and I am grateful for the change that those events were moved to the beginning of the book. A lot of this book is over my head in terms of the math, physics, and science discussed in the story. But with that being said, it's presented in a way that even the most simple of us can still follow and enjoy the overall story. I use the word enjoy very loosely, however. You'll understand why I say that once I kind of get into my review and my spoiler warning. While some of the general terms and ideas were far over my head, I was able to enjoy and follow exactly what was going on through the entire story. I don't necessarily know how well I will be able to relay that to all of you, but I felt like I was able to follow pretty well. Luke Daniels voice acting in this one also helps the story go down a lot smoother and it makes even the most boring segments maybe that are talking about math or physics or things that I completely don't understand. And again, I say boring, but that's a personal opinion. I know to some people, math, science, physics, all of that stuff is extremely interesting and not boring in any way. I will say though for this one, if you miss a section of this book, maybe a paragraph or two. Um, If you're daydreaming while you're doing it, or if you're doing some other task that pulls your attention away from the story while you're listening to it, you are going to find this extremely hard to follow, mostly because of the jumping perspectives, maybe the time jumps, and just kind of the general consensus of what is going on is very, very dense and does require a lot of attention to make sure you don't miss any important points. So what is my overall recommendation on this one? I would highly recommend this book to most people. Luke Daniels' performance alone is a cut above many books in my opinion. Now that being said, this book might not be for everyone. It is a dense, has a lot of scientific terms and things that maybe don't interest a lot of people. But this is also hard science fiction towards the end. It really hits in a different way from a lot of other books I've listened to. It really hits different in a lot of ways from other books I've listened to. It really makes you take a look maybe at yourself and the things going on around us. And it plants a lot of ideas in your head that you may not have maybe not have come up with on your own. Just be aware that if you're not a fan of science fiction... Or if you're not looking for something that's maybe kind of deep and intense and might actually make you uncomfortable at some points, this one's not going to be for you. I do think that everyone, and I really mean everyone, could stand to gain from hearing this book. I also promise the beginning of this book, and even the middle, you're still not going to know where it's going by the time it gets to the end. It's going to have a lot of surprises, and they're going to keep coming at you throughout the entire book, which makes it extremely interesting from very beginning to very end. And I will say I'm excited to get to listen to the next two books in the series. I'm going to do my best here to hopefully explain the overall plot of the story, while still being very spoiler free. I will warn you before I go past the spoiler wall and I kind of talk about the entire story. Alright, so for those of you who don't know what the three-body problem is, which was myself included before I took the time to look it up, I'm just going to go ahead and read this kind of verbatim just so I don't completely screw it up. But the idea of the three-body problem is the problem of taking the initial positions and velocities, or momenta, of three-point masses and solving for their subsequent motion. According to Newton's laws of motion, And Newton's laws of gravitational, or excuse me, Newton's law of universal gravitation. Unlike two body problems, no general closed form solution exists, as the resulting dynamic system is chaotic for the most initial conditions, and numerical methods are generally required. Now, I'm sure to most people, who are not math or physics experts, which I am definitely neither one of those, that made no sense. All right, let's just be honest. So to me, the idea is that these three large masses, especially in space, so think planets or stars or something like that, will generally rotate and revolve around each other in an extremely erratic and chaotic manner due to the way their gravitational forces are acting upon each other. And if you are watching this instead of just listening, hopefully I'll have something up on screen that kind of shows this in real time much better than I can explain it. And I know I probably said that completely wrong, but that's just kind of the way my mind understands it. Now, with that part out of the way, let's get into what this book is actually about. It is based around the idea of the three-body problem as it pertains to a planet that would be orbiting three suns. The three suns will orbit each other in a very erratic and chaotic way. Therefore, the planet orbiting among them would never know when they would have a stable and livable weather patterns. This will be referred to later on in the book as stable or chaotic eras. Now, what does any of this have to do with the actual story? Our main character through most of the story, is actually tasked with gaining access to a scientific organization. While he is trying to gain access and gain this organization's trust, he stumbles across one of the members playing a game known as 3-Body. In the game, the idea is to figure out the cycles of a planet that seems to have no predictable patterns of weather, or day-night, or ice ages, or the firestorms that plague this planet. And through playing the game, our main character figures out that the issue is this planet revolves around three suns. Once he's figured out that part of the game, he's actually invited deeper into the organization. And once he goes deeper into the organization, he finds out that the idea behind the game of three body might not be a completely made up scenario. It's also once our main character is kind of in this organization and familiar with it, that the bulk of the story really starts to unfold as to the much larger picture that involves this game, what is actually going on. And a lot of the story is revolving around these two different secret organizations, realistically, playing 3D chess against each other, essentially, and trying to get out in front of and get ahead of the other one in order to stop their plans For something that might not be so good for humanity. Now, if any of this sounds intriguing to you, and you find yourself wanting to listen to this story, please pause the podcast now, because I'm going to go ahead and pass the spoiler wall. Go ahead and go over and listen to this story wherever you get your audiobooks from. But please come back here and hear what I have to say about it, because I'm going to go ahead and share my two cents on it while while I give my overall thoughts and ideas on the entire story at least to the best of my ability so you've been warned if you don't want this spoiled for you please go ahead and go listen to it and then come back here and hear what i have to say also this is probably a good time if you are watching this on youtube or whatever please do all the things you know that that you're supposed to do on youtube thank you and i really appreciate it all right i'm going to attempt to record a tldl too long didn't listen because I know that the runtime of my podcast is going to end up being way too long. I spent an embarrassingly long time recording what is probably an unnecessarily long episode of the podcast for this series, or for this book in particular. So here goes, here goes my very short explanation of the three-body problem book. Basically, there is an alien planet known as Trisolaris, which orbits around three suns, which orbit around each other, right? Therefore, the three-body problem, okay, these three suns constantly interacting very erratically and unpredictably in space. This advanced alien race that lives on Trisolaris has received a message sent from Earth in the 1960s. Using the information sent from Earth, the Trisolarans have decided to leave their homeworld and set out to conquer Earth, which is about 450 Earth years away from Trisolaris, about four light years. Once humans receive this information, they are divided on the idea of this. Some want Trisolarans to come and conquer our kind of corrupt planet and humanity, and others obviously want to stop this from happening. Trisolarans use their extremely advanced technology to try and halt human technology from advancing at all, so that humans have no hope of defeating Trisolarans before or upon their arrival. The Trisolarans show their hand towards the end of the book in the fact that they view humans as mere bugs and they simply want to wipe them out. However, we as humans have never been able to wipe out bugs on our own planet, no matter how hard we try. Therefore, this gives humanity some hope of resisting and fighting this hostile alien takeover. Yeah, that was it. That was my kind of hopefully sums up the book in about one paragraph. Now I will go into the much, much longer description. If you'd like to stick around for that, I really appreciate it. All right, so with all of that absolute rambling out of the way, I'm going to go ahead and do my best to explain this story from start to finish. So this book opens up in China in 1967 during a cultural revolution. And I'm not sure if this is based on a 100% real event, if this is mixed kind of made-up events and real events. Either way, the scene that we open up on is the... uh, the Red Union and the April 28th Brigade are kind of fighting. A lot of infighting in the streets and things like that. Pretty much chaos during this uh, bit of a civil war. And when you kind of figure out what the the reason that these people are fighting is for, it's it's a little ridiculous. First, we get to witness the gruesome kind of murder of this uh, young woman, a 15-year-old who is kind of standing up high on a building holding a... a flag and she is shot and killed Um, and then is also very grotesquely brutalized basically for public demonstration of what kind of happens to the other side when someone is killed so we then jump over to a what they call a struggle session in which some of the red guards are putting the reactionary thinkers kind of on blast in front of a large crowd now this is what i meant when i said that the idea that this civil war is being fought over to me seems very ridiculous. It's essentially based on scientific beliefs, but in reality it's, it's it, it would be no different than like religious infighting or people persecuting other people for any of their beliefs. It's just another silly thing that we as humans do, which spoiler alert, is kind of what the book is about. Now, there's going to be a lot of names in this that are Chinese in origin or and or, you know, Asian in origin, and I will probably not pronounce them correctly. I will just say that now. I am going to do my best to say them as they were said in the audiobook, so I'm hoping that Luke Daniels did his research and was saying them correctly during the book so that I when I repeat them I'm hopefully at least getting pretty close. So during this struggle session there is a large crowd gathered and to witness the punishment of some of these reactionary thinkers and among them is Yazatai. He is a physics professor who he he's among several others on stage but he is the one most of all who kind of refuses to give in to the Red Guards and their terrorist-like ways of Trying to get him to admit that he is wrong in the thoughts and beliefs that he has on physics and things like that. Uh, during this struggle session, he is actually beaten to death by four high school girls with their with their belts. It's pretty brutal, pretty uh this whole beginning of the book here really sets the stage for the entire book. It's definitely a solid hook for the rest of the book, even though. Once we pass this, it kind of settles down a lot. So while he is, while Yazatai is beaten on stage, his daughter, Yawensia, is actually in the crowd and witnesses this entire thing. And she attempts to actually get on stage and stop it, but she's stopped by some janitorial staff because most likely she would fall into the same, you know, have the same fate probably if she were to get up on stage and do anything. She's also, I believe, at this point already labeled because of both who her father is and her based on her studies in um, high school and uh, early college years, I believe, is what she is in at this time. I could be wrong on that, but she's already like a physicist and things like that, studying kind of the same things her father did. So she's already looked at poorly in this light. Her mother also is there and is sort of berating Yazatai during the whole thing because uh, apparently she just doesn't want to defend him in any way because it's just easier to turn against him rather than stand with him against a very large crowd of people. After this all happens, uh, yeah, when Sia goes home and finds her mother is already there like laughing insanely because apparently at this point she has completely gone insane. So then, yeah, when Sia turns to who she might think is the next closest person that can help her in this time of need and she goes to one of her college professors' homes and she finds that her this college professor has already killed herself by taking an entire bottle of sleeping pills. So, pretty bleak and grim start to the book. Uh, I would like to say it gets better, but I can't fully promise that. It won't be quite so in your face dark for quite a while. So we jump forward two years and Yawenxia is in the mountains working at a lumber camp for the construction corps. And I believe this is some punishment for her being a reactionary thinker. And she's speaking with a man named Bai I think his name's Bai Lin uh, who gives her a book called Silent Spring and in this book it discusses the devastating effects that pesticides have had on a small town. It's kind of setting the stage for like some people's inability to see what you know harm they're causing and meanwhile it is causing a lot of harm for you know maybe it's just a small community but in reality it's still humans harming other humans you know for their own benefit essentially yeah the book kind of goes into topics such as you know humans inability to distinguish basically between things that they don't care about being actually important or not. It's kind of an interesting topic that they broach with this kind of book that Ya Wen Sia is given. <clears throat> now, this book, I believe they are not supposed to have. This guy was given the book for translation and distribution practices among leadership, but he was not really supposed to let Ya Sia have it. Uh, so he, this Bai Lin, wants to write a letter to the leadership in Beijing because he believes that what the construction core is doing is extremely detrimental and destructive, you know, to nature and things like that. So he believes that they are kind of doing the same thing as in this book, Silent Spring. There is comments made, too, that this book deeply affects Sia for the rest of her life. The concept of this very simple book. When Sia returns this book, Bai mentions that he was working near a place called Radar Peak, which is apparently near the lumber camp that they are working at. Uh, This is a military location, and we get some very vague ideas of what this place is. Obviously, it is a large kind of radar dish located on the peak of this mountain, but it's apparently also an extremely secret military base. We, as the listener, are let in on a little bit of information, but the characters, I believe, at this point have very, very little information We are let in on the fact that sometimes snow has been seen turning straight into rain near the peak, strange lights in the sky, uh, very rapid changes in weather, strange sounds, people who have worked at the site for many years completely losing all of their hair, so it's very strange. Bai gives Wencia his letter that he would like to send to the leadership in Beijing, and she agrees to sort of proofread and rewrite the letter for him since his hands are pretty much shot from uh, running a chainsaw and things like that, even though that's not his normal job. he His hands were extremely shaky and things like that, so he can't write it out nicely. So she agrees to do it for him. Yeah is then later approached by leadership because they have found the letter and they think that she is the one who wrote it. And that the letter itself actually goes against the ideas that this organization is trying to spread, right? The socialism and things like that. Basically, no one can speak out against what the greater leadership is doing. So, yeah, is actually sent to prison because of this. Because Bai actually turned her in, it turns out, for writing the letter claiming that she wrote it, you know, and not him. Which obviously is damning to her because it's in her handwriting, while Yeah is in prison, the prison she's in is extremely cold and some of this is metaphorical and some of it is physical I believe. But she's approached urging Yeah to sign a report that sort of it is condemning evidence against her father and it supposedly is written by her sister. But Yeah believes none of that is true, yes it is damning ev- evidence against her father. But she doesn't believe it was written by her sister. They do realize that Yawin Sia is extremely smart. But because she's considered a reactionary thinker, they can't necessarily use her skills and abilities because of her reactionary ways of thinking. So basically what they want her to do is sign this letter. And so that way they can use that as saying, oh, she turned against, you know, the other reactionary thinkers... She's okay now, you know, she's okay to be on our side. But, yeah, completely refuses to sign the letter at all because she has no knowledge of the evidence and things like that stated in the letter. Therefore, she refuses to sign it as though, you know, it was something she came up with. And before this lady ends up leaving, she actually pours water all over Yawensia and, and calls her a stupid little bitch. This is where I meant, like yeah it kind of falls into a it basically says she's frozen solid and i believe that's both in her mind as well as somewhat physically because of how cold the prison is the water that was poured on her actually does have a very physical effect yeah this this was one of the parts in the book that was kind of hard to wrap my head around in audio form um and i'm sure if you were even reading the book yourself it would still be a little hard to understand because it's i believe it's both a physical and a mental and emotional things we are getting from Yawin Sia at the time. So just be aware of that. That is a little bit hard to kind of wrap your head around some of these concepts if you're not very smart like me. When Yawin Sia comes to from her being frozen solid uh, fit that she sort of has, she is in a military helicopter. She is accompanied by two men, Yang Weining and Lei Zicheng, and they work at Red Coast Base. They have come and removed her from prison because of the knowledge they think she possesses on physics that could be beneficial to them, basically. So they take her to Red Coast Base, and Yang actually tries to get Yao and Sia to not stay at the base. He basically tells her, once you're here and once you agree to work here, you cannot leave. That's basically it for you. It also is brought up that, yeah, knew this man from back in college, but he had kind of tried to act like he had no ties to her when he first saw her. Once he is able to approach her alone, though, he kind of lets on that, you know, how he feels for her and that he doesn't want her to be stuck there for the rest of her life. This base is actually ran by the People's Liberation Army. I don't necessarily know or understand still where all of these factions fit into the larger story but just know that they are there so shortly after she is at the base she also witnesses the base kind of come alive right and there's a lot of commotion going on red lights and klaxons kind of start going off and a red light appears on the radar she sees that some clouds off in the distance seem to change color in what she can only perceive as where the radar is aiming She hears and sees a huge flock of birds fly out of the forest below the radar simultaneously. And a bunch of these birds actually fly between the radar and the cloud that she perceives to be changed in color. And any of the birds that fly in that area seem to drop dead completely out of the sky. She can also feel a kind of tingling and things like that on her skin. So very obviously, something pretty weird going on here. After these events, we jump forward another forty years. Actually, we get a large time skip as well as a change in perspective. So Wang Miao is going to basically be our main character, I would say, for most of the story from this point forward. And he's is approached by a group of four people: two police officers and a couple of the a couple officials from the People's Liberation Army. And they start questioning him about a group of people known as the Frontiers of Science organization. Wong is actually then taken to a meeting with some of the military leaders in attendance. And one of these guys who came to get him is known as uh, Dasha or they call him Big Xie. It I believe Dasha is the nickname for him as Big Sha which I'll probably refer to him mostly as that throughout the story. And this guy kind of rubs... Wong the wrong way right off the bat. He's pretty abrasive and things like that. And it'll become more apparent later on in the story though that he's actually a he is actually a big deal in the story. In the simple little exchanges that Wong and Big Shi have at this meeting, Wong realizes that even though he's very brash and abrasive, there's a reason he's part of this organization. He is extremely observant and even though he's just seen as a normal police officer, he clearly has some very useful skills needed to kind of figure things out. At this meeting, Wong is given a group of names of high-ranking academics who have recently killed themselves. And apparently at some point they were all involved with the Frontiers of Science, whom this group of military officials figured out that Wong was also contacted by the Frontiers of Science. And Wong had kind of I guess, refused to go work with the frontiers. Either that or he just hadn't gotten around to it yet. Wong Meow is actually a professor who specializes in nanomaterials research. Big Shu kind of makes a comment about nanomaterials being used for criminal acts, you know, since they are basically fibers that could cut through anything but can't be seen by the naked eye. This might come up later in the story. So basically this group wants Wong to... ...contact the Frontiers of Science and go ahead and join the organization. But they want him to join the organization as a spy for their side, essentially. They want him to kind of figure out what is going on as to why these other scientists have killed themselves... ...as well as what the Frontiers of Science is up to. Even though they are kind of a public organization, no one necessarily knows what they are doing in, within their organization... And I believe some of this is also just information that is not given to Wong at this time. Wong refuses. He doesn't want to turn into a spy against the frontiers of science. And it's very interesting because the way Big Shu actually talks him into doing it is saying that, you know, yeah, there's no way you could cut it. You'd probably just end up killing yourself, too, just like all the others did. It's actually kind of funny because it works and... Wong decides that, okay, he will go ahead and do it. One of the generals that's there also kind of lets Wong in on, it's very important for him to do this because of the war that is going on. And Wong is very confused by this because he thought that, you know, they're in one of the most peaceful times they've ever been in, in recent history. And this is kind of what I was talking about, that Wong is probably not let in on all the information. The first thing that Wong does is goes to one of the members on the list who had killed herself, Yang Dong. And this is actually the daughter of Yao and Sia. And it sounds like that he had known about Yang Dong and maybe lusted over her at one point in time. So Wong goes and visits her husband, Ding Yi, I believe is how you say his name. And Ding Yi is obviously completely distraught over his wife killing herself. I don't remember the exact timeline this has happened, but I believe it was pretty recently after she had killed herself. And her husband is drunk, but while Wong is there, he wants Wong to perform some experiments with him. So, they perform these very strange experiments in which he has Wong go to a pool table, set the black ball very near one of the pockets, set the white ball very near the black ball, and hit the white ball to knock the black ball with into the pocket. Wong is rather confused by this because he thinks it's obviously very simple, so doesn't really see the point of it. Ding Yi has him then help him move the pool table to a different area of the room and repeat the experiment, quote-unquote. And he has the, has him do this multiple times, right? So moving the pool table all around the room, meanwhile setting the balls in the exact same place and performing the same experiment, if you will. Wong is obviously not concerned by this at all because he says, yeah, it kind of went exactly as I thought. The only thing that changed was the location of the pool table within the room, which really shouldn't have changed the experiment at all. Now, Ding Yi apparently works at one of the. Oh, I'm going to screw this up. The like a collider where they collide, you know, atoms and particle matter together to break it down even smaller i believe and study the very like internal workings of like atoms and things like that stuff on the like subatomic level and he proceeds to explain to wong that yeah you would think you know since the only thing that changed was the location of the experiment everything should go exactly the same each time however what they had been witnessing at his work and how he explains it with the pool balls is now what would ha- what would you have thought if, you know, during one of the experiments you hit the white ball and it suddenly veered off and shot off to the other side of the room? Or maybe when it hit the black ball, the black ball exploded. Basically, these were things they were witnessing at his job where the rules and laws of physics were not being followed in any observable manner, which really kind of has him on edge and really freaked out so obviously this kind of piques wong's interest as well because it's obviously pretty weird so to clear his head after this meeting with uh, ding Yi, wong goes and starts taking some photographs because he fancies himself an amateur photographer and it's kind of just how he you know clears his head calms himself down so he has actual like film a film camera an old like leica Camera, I believe, from like the 80s or something like that, that he enjoys taking pictures with and developing the film and kind of going through that ritual. So he goes around, takes some pictures and whatnot. And when he gets home to develop the film, he realizes there are numbers on the pictures that he's taken, which, since the pictures were taken from a Actual film camera and not a digital camera. There's no way for the camera to put like a timestamp or anything like that on it. So he's very kind of freaked out by this. He realizes the numbers are superimposed into specific areas of the pictures so that they appear perfectly clearly no matter what the picture is. Usually he always takes his pictures in black and white because that's just kind of his style. And in each picture, the numbers are, if the background is white, the numbers have made themselves black. If the background is black, the numbers have made themselves white. They perfectly align so that all of them can be seen. And he quickly kind of realizes that this looks like a countdown of sorts. Each picture consequently showing a change in time, you know, subsequent to the next one. And this was the first point in the book where I really had like a very uneasy feeling for some reason. Um, It really kind of struck me as incredibly odd and unsettling. This was even before, obviously, I realized what the overarching story was. But this was definitely the first point, even more so than I would say the violent acts of the very beginning of the book. This gave me the most anxiety up to this point, strangely enough. He also kind of, to test this a little bit further, he has his son and wife take some photos as well, both with digital and his physical camera, and notices the countdown does not appear for them on their photos, but it always appears for him no matter what he takes pictures with, whether it's a digital camera or his physical camera. The first thing Wong decides to do kind of after he gets this countdown going on to himself is go and speak with uh, Shen Yufei, who is also a member of the Frontiers of Science he also meets her husband at this point, but it's not really a big deal yet. We will come back to him later. And he realizes while he's there, you know, he remembers that he's supposed to be kind of spying on these people. So he realizes that Shen Fei is actually playing a game using a haptic feedback suit and a VR setup. And the game she's playing is from a website called Three Body. So he explains to her what he's seeing, this countdown sort of and these pictures and things like that. And she asks him about the nanomaterials project that he's working on. He thinks nothing of that, but she says, just stop your research. And he basically says, I can't do that. There's no way. And she says, just stop your research. Maybe the countdown will stop. And he's extremely confused by this. While he is also at her house, as he is leaving, I believe it is, he witnesses this other man named Pan Han show up, who is a biologist with the Frontiers of Science, And this guy, they talk about how he has made several, like, very startling predictions for kind of economical and biological things in society. To the point where some people think he's actually from the future because he predicts them with such crazy accuracy. He's also started these, like, really weird kind of movements. He basically starts, like, a city within a city where people live off of the trash of the larger city in their small community within... The large city, it's it's really strange stuff, but uh, basically it's, you know, a lot of environmentalist movements to try to say humans are terrible, is is the, sh- the long and short of it. Shen also kind of threatens Wong that if he doesn't stop his research into nanomaterials, that they might, they being the frontiers of science, you know, might tip their hand and it would force their hand upon him potentially. So now Wong's kind of in a weird spot because he's being threatened from multiple sides. So, you know, that's cool. Once Wong actually gets home, uh, big shu is actually hanging out there. I don't actually remember why he's just kind of keeping an eye on things, I guess. And I think he's also keeping an eye on Wong potentially in case Wong, you know, slips up, wants to kill himself. Potentially. Once Wong actually goes to sleep that night, he continues to see this countdown kind of in his mind and in his dreams kind of has a really you know fitful sleep and keeps seeing this countdown in his head but he realizes once he wakes up that the numbers are actually permanently imprinted onto his vision now so that no matter where he looks he's constantly seeing this countdown and this part of the book also made me feel like extremely uncomfortable for some reason in a sense that, like, what would you do if something like this happened to you? I mean, it's kind of an insane thing to think about that you all of a sudden get this countdown in front of your vision that you have no way of knowing why or what it's there for. Wong decides to go back to his nanotech research lab and tells them to basically shut the machine down, stop the experiments. And once he does this, once they actually shut the entire thing down, the countdown in his vision stops and then fades from his vision. So now he's really freaked out, because obviously Shen Yufei had told him to stop his research, and that actually stops the countdown immediately. So he calls Shen Fei and asks her, like, what is it about the nanotech and his applied research that's so important to them? However, she kind of responds very cryptically, saying that they don't determine what is important. So you really start to get early on that this... There's a much larger kind of scheme going on here than maybe just the surface level stuff and it was really at this point that I I really was getting hooked into the book really hard like obviously I said the book has a very strong opening and that's true but I believe this part of the book is really just the the odd like uncomfortable anxiety feeling it gave me really kind of set me in to be like okay this is a very unique book that I've kind of stumbled across not that I obviously am the first one, you know, <laughs> I'm not getting like an early review. This came out a long time ago, but just really, this was a, a real good tipping point for me. Shen Yufei also asks Wong if he wants to see the countdown on an even larger scale. And he doesn't really think anything of this at this point. He then kind of decides to tell her, you know, bring it on. I don't think you can really do anything to me. She gives him a specific website to go to, which is actually like a kind of Morse code chart. And he needs to go somewhere where he can observe the cosmic microwave background, which is essentially the radiation and things like that in the universe is the way I understand it with my very simple brain. She tells him that in three days time, the entire universe is going to flicker for him. So at this point, Wong decides to go back to his nanotech facility and get a V suit that they actually have there. And he logs into the three body game with this haptic feedback suit. It's pretty cool. You know, like obviously he can kind of feel temperatures and some different things within the actual game itself. It's a hardcore virtual reality game, essentially. And he meets up with a couple of guys right away. Uh, He's in like a desert area, meets up with a couple of guys, one calling himself King Wen of Zoe. I think that's how it is. I might have actually completely taken that down wrong in my notes. Either way, the weird part to him is that one of the guys has an hourglass and he tells him they need to, you know, flip it over three times a day because it, it runs in eight hour increments. The follower of King Wen, the other guy with him, is, you know, helps him remember to flip it three times a day. And Wong says, why don't you just use like a sundial or simply look at the positioning of the sun to tell, you know, what time of day it is or how many days have passed. These guys look at him and say, well, this is a chaotic era, which this means nothing to Wong at this point. But basically, there's no way of knowing when the sun is going to come up next. Wong decides to travel with these two other gentlemen. And uh, the follower of King Wen actually mentions the dehydrated bodies they keep seeing all around which is very strange when you first hear it. <laughs> Interestingly enough, too, since not a whole lot is going on, the game engine actually speeds up time to pass more quickly for them. And Wong actually realizes that more than two days have actually passed in-game based on the way that they've, you know, flipped their uh, their kind of um, hourglass. But the sun has never risen during those full two days, so... Now he's starting to realize there is something very strange going on here. After some more time goes by, the sun actually does rise in the sky, and it gets extremely hot, you know? Not, like, necessarily what Earth feels like, obviously. So, we as the listener, obviously, are maybe thinking this is not... mm, It's not Earth. Like, basically, the game is not based on Earth. But we don't... You don't really know that yet. Because there are just people that he's talking to, so the follower ends up actually dehydrating himself which is just super weird he essentially stops and squeezes all of the fluid and water from his body and he turns into like a little dried up (laughs) husk essentially of himself that can then be rolled up like a bedroll and carried like it's really small it's just it's super weird to think about (laughs) um I found a, some artwork online, so if you're watching this, hopefully I'll I'll try to include it and I'll try to include the uh, the artist who made it that kind of has a depiction of what this stuff might look like. It's, it's very bizarre to picture in your mind. So after some time of traveling, him and King Wen uh, witnessed two flying stars in the sky, which King Wen tells Wong that this is a good sign because it means that there is now a stable era coming up. So now, Wong and us as the listener have been introduced to the term of chaotic and stable eras. This is going to be important throughout the rest of the story. Wong asks if there is ever any more or less than two flying stars to indicate anything happening. And he's told that there can be as many as three flying stars in the sky. But there's actually no true way to predict when a stable era will start or end. This is when King Wen tells Wong kind of the point of the game is to figure out how to predict when there will be a stable or chaotic era, basically. During the stable eras, everyone on the planet is rehydrated, (laughs) given water from their little bedroll states, and they turn back into people, essentially. So... King Wen is going to King Zhou, which is why I think I might have wrote that wrong, when he said King Wen, he calls himself King Wen of Zhou. Anyways, he's going to King Zhou's palace to basically, he thinks he has the answer, right, for the chaotic and stable eras. So they go to this palace, which is basically a giant Egyptian pyramid-looking structure. And when they get in there, (laughs) they they see all these pendulums that have been placed around this thing and that are all kind of swinging in unison and there's like one giant one I believe swinging and that's because this other guy had made a prediction that the sun is actually a god and they would use these pendulums to relax the sun so that it would fall into much more of a stable era more often Uh, this guy is immediately killed (laughs) and It's really messed up. They put him in, like, a giant cauldron and cook him so they can, like, eat him. It's freaking weird. Wong also realizes that a lot of the towers, I'm assuming they look, in my mind, they look kind of like a silo. Um, They're scattered all throughout the land, and these are actually completely full of dehydrated bodies. This is where bodies are kept, (laughs) apparently, uh, during chaotic eras to be dehydrated. Um, During stable eras is when people would be rehydrated and civilization can advance, which is going to come up later in the story. So King Wen actually presents his theory as to the when the next stable and chaotic era is going to begin based on his calculations and however he does them. Turns out he's right, you know, early on a lot of his predictions are correct even if they're slightly off, they think they're close enough that they will go ahead and rehydrate and they can start civilization anew, you know, and start advancing again as people Uh, However it turns out he was wrong. Basically right after everyone rehydrates the sun goes down and the next time it's predicted to come back up it doesn't. Turns out A extremely long period of nighttime and an extremely long period of cold has just begun. They actually end up seeing three flying stars in the sky, and that kind of ushers in this long night. So people immediately start to dehydrate again, which I guess they can just do on command in this world. And (laughs) King Wen takes it upon himself to climb into the same cauldron as the guy who was using the pendulums and just go ahead and kill himself. I believe too, I don't know if it's stated at this point, if he does kill himself in that way, he is deleted from the game and his, we'll find this out later, but his retina was scanned when logging in. So he himself can now never log into the game again. Wong ends up going back outside again and obviously it's extremely cold and the game speeds up and it sends a message kind of, you know, in the overworld to the players. Um, and it says that the Long Night lasted for 48 years, and civilization number 137 was destroyed due to this, and they advanced to the Warring States period. The seeds of civilization will go on, and that players are invited to log in at a later time in the future. This was also the point where you kind of realize as the listener, what would be the point of playing this game? Like, that that was at least what was going on in my head. Like, why... What what in the world, how does this game fit into the overall story here? So obviously the game is now kind of stuck in Wong's head. He ends up uh, going to, oh, that's right. He goes and actually sees Ya Wen because he wants to talk to her, obviously, about kind of what happened with Yong Dong. He also needs to talk to her because uh, she would obviously know where to view the cosmic background radiation. She's also extremely kind to him while he's there at her house, and uh, he says that he will, you know, come back and visit her often. You know, she's she's older now, and she has some grandkids that she's taken care of since uh, Yong Dong killed herself. He kind of feels sorry for her and what she's been through and, you know, agrees to kind of come around and help her out more often. He goes to the uh, Radio Astronomy Observatory that Yat yeah, Wencia told him to go to uh, so that he can view the background radiation. Um, him and the guy who worked there proceed to have a conversation about some scientific stuff that is way over my head. That's not the first or last time in this book that I felt uncomfortable in a way that I simply had very, very little understanding of anything that these guys are talking about. They're talking some science that's way above my pay grade. Wong lets this guy know that he thinks there's going to be changes and fluctuations of over 5% on this screen that basically has been steady for years, right? It's been viewing the cosmic radiation background and has just been pretty much completely steady and flat line. This guy thinks he's crazy, doesn't think anything's going to happen, but it does. This completely abnormal fluctuation happens. And it happens right when Shen Yu said that it would. Basically, the entire universe is the radiation levels are flickering, right? To these multiple things that this guy is using to read this stuff. It is happening. Uh, so he, he can't deny that. He calls other observatories, they witness the same thing. It's all recorded. Therefore, it did really happen. So it really solidifies, too, in the story that there's something. Huge going on, right? You know, not only with like the visions that Wong is having, but obviously now it can affect the essentially the entire universe. Let's just say this kind of really sets in deep with Wong because now he's like, well, maybe now I can kind of understand why the other scientists might have killed themselves. Wong actually ends up meeting up later on with Big sha and he gets really drunk with Big Shuh, which Big Sha kind of encourages. (laughs) Wong asks Big Sha if there's more going on that he can share with him because now he's obviously in deep and he would like to know a little bit more. Big Sha tells him his prediction and he thinks that the prediction is that someone is trying to ruin scientific research and advancement and maybe get humans back to a much more natural way of living. Think like what Pan Han was doing with, you know, his living among society and, think about like Silent Spring and things like that right Big Sha tells Wong that he has no idea who is involved or like how much there is or how deep it goes but all he knows is that there's obviously something very strange going on he also thinks that the way this is being done is a lot more psychological right than killing off the scientists because that would almost be too easy, right? So the ideas that those scientists had are already out there. So if you kill one, someone else will most likely stumble across the research and pick it up right where it was left off and continue on with it. However, if you make scientists truly scared to follow up on these thoughts and ideas, then the thoughts and ideas will actually be muddied up and potentially die in their tracks and will not be pursued anymore. Big Sha basically tells Wong that at this point, the best thing he can do is drink some more and kind of go on with his life and not really get too worried yet about what's happening. He does tell him, though, that he should keep playing the three-body game because he thinks that there is something going on between that game and either the suicides or the, uh, you know, the halting of science and things like that. Wong ends up going out and buying his own personal V-suit and taking it home and logs back into the game and he quickly realizes that eons have passed since the last time he was even logged in even though it wasn't that long ago the pyramid itself looks different now in this playthrough i believe this is the one he shows up and the pyramid is still there but there's also a much larger structure behind it i believe something like three hundred and sixty-two thousand years has passed since the last time wong played which I, so i don't fully understand how the time advances in the game versus in real time. I don't know if it's fully ever explained, but uh, and he finds out civilization has been reborn four more times since the last time that he played. He gets a little bit more information about kind of what's going on uh, in the previous eras. And it, it all just kind of deepens his curiosity into the actual game itself. I also believe this is when he starts calling himself Copernicus each time that he logs into the game. And the guy who is, thinks that he has the universe figured out this time, has decided that the entire universe is actually a giant machine. He's built this crazy, like, scale model. Wong ends up using a telescope while this guy's kind of machine thing is working and supposedly predicting the, uh, you know, what's going to be happening next in the world. And he uses it to kind of observe the universe while the game is also in fast forward, which he thinks is very cool because he obviously gets to see way more things than you would get to see maybe even in your normal lifetime because of how quickly he can observe them. And I believe it's on one of the predicted days when the sun is supposed to rise. It doesn't rise when it was predicted to. However, it does end up rising slightly later and it is like, extremely huge in the sky so huge and seems to be so close that immediately everything on the planet starts catching on fire and he receives another message that says that civilization 141 was basically burned up right due (laughs) to how close to to the sun that it was but that the seeds of civilization you know are still planted and that he's invited to log on uh in the future Uh, After this, he ends up going back to see Yawensia, and and this is when he asks her about, like, her experience at Red Coast Base, and she tells him. We get a harsh kind of perspective shift, and this is kind of what I was talking about in the beginning, that we get some of these perspective shifts that make it a little bit harder to follow the story, but once you realize what happened, it's not too terribly difficult to keep up, I suppose. Um, And we jump back to Yaz's perspective. I do... I like the way that this is done in this book, though, since it's not just her telling Wong and explaining to Wong kind of what she went through at Red Coast Base. We actually jump back and jump into her perspective back at Red Coast Base, which is pretty cool. She explains that, you know, while she was there, she was kind of under security scrutiny the whole time, and all she could do was basically simple tasks because she wasn't trusted to be anywhere on the base by herself. She is told some very basic information, though, that... The point of Red Coast Base is essentially to ruin other countries' satellite capabilities in space because they can send radio waves, you know, directly at the satellites and fry the components or screw up the signaling or whatever they want to do, essentially with the base. That apparently was just a front Because later on, she's told the actual purpose of Red Coast Base. She's given a document to read that Red Coast Base was actually set up to establish contact with alien life. So again, now as the listener, I'm like, oh, oh, dang. okay, aliens now, too. Wow. The document has a lot of omitted information because it's also highly classified. It's almost awkward to listen to. It would go down much smoother, obviously, if you were reading it and looking at the text yourself, because... Uh, the omitted information is omitted using X's. So, you know, if there was a date, all the numbers would just be X'd out. But unfortunately, for this to come across in audio form, the narrator has to read those X's. So where there might be a name omitted or something, that would be very plain to see if you were reading it yourself. It actually comes across a little strange in audio form because you just hear a lot of X, 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 X. Just a little tangent note, but I think it's worth mentioning. This document kind of explains the basic idea of what they're trying to do. Send a signal into space that any civilization that has a basic knowledge of algebra could decode and read. Uh, This part's kind of funny too because it says the first draft of what they wanted to be sent into space. And the draft basically says that they, you know, they're the best and don't listen to anybody else. If you've received messages from them, you should definitely ignore them and only listen to this message. Is obviously redrafted a couple times. And then they have a a final version that is the one that's to be sent out. Basically the humans are looking to send this message to any race of beings out in the, you, you know, universe that uh, they are assuming would be civilized to uh, come and help them basically fix Earth. Yeah, also explains to Wong that she doesn't believe the base could have transmitted the messages loud enough for anyone to hear them in space. She doesn't think that any of the way it was working would have actually been able to uh, contact anyone, really. So Wong jumps back into Three-Body. This, Sorry, this is when he actually starts using the name Copernicus. Uh, Because I think that at this point, he thinks he knows what's going on in the game. He sees that the nature of the world has changed again, extremely, since the last time he logged in. He approaches the new uh, kind of leadership of this this civilization and i i say leadership but it's that's not even really what it is it's also just scientists and things like that and i don't fully understand how this part of the game works if these are other players or if these are you know npcs that are just created by ai to kind of help advance the game there's a lot of historical figures at this meeting um galileo and da vinci and stuff are there wong gives his theory on how he thinks this universe works and he thinks that there are actually three suns that this planet is orbiting which is the problem with why uh, none of the predictions that have been made could accurately predict any of what has happened. The leader of this new civilization, they just refer to him as the Pope but Wong actually thinks that his eyes look very similar to King Zhou from the first time he logged in so now he's curious if The leadership of this sort of planet never actually changes, even though it changes on the face, that it might still be, you know, the actually same person who always is running the place. The rest of them think that Wong is crazy for his idea that there's three sons, so they decide to actually burn him, essentially, (laughs) to kill him because they think he's crazy. He says he'll just log back in and he'll try to solve it again. And this is where they tell him his retinal scan has been recorded, and that once they burn him in this way, he will not be allowed to log back into the game. As they're getting ready to do this, though, uh, the sunrise begins and it also starts to burn the planet again. However, there is not one sun rising. There are actually three suns coming up over the horizon, kind of stacked very near each other. So this does kind of vindicate wong in his prediction as well as uh the ending message of the game this time reveals that civilization 183 was destroyed by a tri-solar day it also states that copernicus has revealed the basic structure of this universe and that the game will now advance to level two right after wong logs out of this session he gets a call from big Shu, telling him he needs to come to his office at the criminal division when Wong gets there, he sees that uh, Wei Chang is there. And this is Shen Fei's husband. There's also a computer security specialist there. And Wei Chang shares with them that he believes his life is in danger. He proceeds to tell them like his life story, essentially. Uh, to the point where, at the end, Big Show's not impressed. <laughs> but Wei Chang kind of shares the information that uh, he is extremely lazy. But he also has this uh, special ability... Uh, even though he's so lazy. He's like really, really good at math um, without even really trying. He sees numbers as three-dimensional shapes and he sees three-dimensional shapes as numbers, which allows him to kind of solve and make calculations extremely fast, you know, more than most people. Uh, A lot of this stuff is way over my head because I believe he is a theoretical physicist. Theoretical physicist. See, I can't even say the titles that these people have. That's shows you how smart I am. He talks about how he became a teacher, but he found no joy in that because he's so lazy and it was all too easy to him. But the students couldn't really follow, you know, his methods. So he ended up going to a Buddhist monastery, not really to become a monk, but basically just to be lazy is how he describes it. And essentially, while he's there. The abbot tells him that he needs to fill himself kind of with emptiness to find peace and happiness. And while he's doing this, basically, in his mind, he creates this idea of a sphere. But the sphere itself is too lonely, right, in in the openness of space. So he creates a second sphere to keep it company, is kind of how he describes it. But he said that's also pretty boring, too, because then the two spheres simply act on each other in a very predictable way, you know, circling each other based on their gravitation to each other. And eventually their gravitational forces on each other will stabilize, causing them basically to rotate around each other in a very boring and simple way. So he introduces a third body, if you will. So now these three spheres that he has created start acting on each other in A very crazy and erratic way right the a very unpredictable way if you will he basically is thinking now about the three body problem and wondering if there is any way to predict how these bodies will interact with each other eventually he thinks he can come up with a way using a evolving kind of algorithm that he comes up with on his own he writes it out in long form and stuff like that on paper but this is when he ends up meeting Shen Yufei, and she decides to give him access to a supercomputer and personal computers and things like that in order to help him study the three-body problem. Because she is also extremely interested, you know, we know why, in uh, the three-body problem. He ends up going with her, he marries her, pretty much solely out of necessity. He explains he's not really super like interested in her, but he likes the fact that she's interested in his work and is going to allow him to do his work, as well as she's extremely financially stable, so all he has to do is work on the three-body problem, which is perfect for him. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning here, too, there's a slight recording error in this. I'm not really one to talk about recording errors, because I know my recording methods are terrible, but... There is a very strange part here where Luke Daniels reads a line and then it stops and he repeats the same line again. Very, very simple. Very easy to overlook even by multiple editors, I'm sure. But just something you don't see very often and just something I noticed during this recording. Big Shu asks Wei Chang at this point, like, what does all of that have to do with anything? And what is, you know, Shen Yufei up to with the frontiers of science. What are they doing? And Wei Cheng says he doesn't really know because he doesn't really care what she does as long as he gets to work on his work. However, he received a phone call telling him he needs to stop his research of the three-body problem or he will be killed. He also explains that that same night after he received that phone call, Shen Yufei, his wife, holds a gun to his face while they're in bed and says he needs to continue his research, or she will kill him herself. And that if he solves the three-body problem, he could potentially be the savior of the world. Now, at this point in the story, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but we'll figure out why that all makes sense later on. Big Shu, being a police officer, realizes that just the simple fact that Shen Yufei might possess a firearm gives them good enough reason to search their home. On the ride over to Shen Yufei's house, the information security officer that's in the car with Wong says that he has established quite the reputation now in the three-body game. She explains that it's been her job to kind of monitor the game for the police, essentially. And Wong asks her kind of if she has any other information about the game. Asks if she thinks there's anything supernatural going on. She kind of explains that they don't necessarily know but that she does think that there potentially is something you know, weird about it. They can't really track where it comes from or who made it or any of that stuff. He also doesn't really believe a whole lot of what she says because he thinks that she's basically lying to him about some stuff and she's also omitting information from him. So once they actually get to Shen's house, the timing is impeccable because they hear what sounds like loud slapping against the wall multiple times as soon as they pull up. And Big Shi runs in to find Shen laying on the floor in a pool of blood, having been shot multiple times. Uh, I believe it's like twice in the chest and once in the head. Very obviously dead on the floor. Apparently, she was just killed. That's what the slapping sound was, was multiple gunshots. After they come across all of this, Wei also tells Shue that Shen Yufei had an argument with Pan Han. You know, and apparently they argue... Quite a bit, and apparently, whatever it is they're arguing about doesn't really make sense to him or anybody else. They speak about things like their lord coming to earth and punishing those who are unworthy and things like that. Wong asks if he can have Wei's solution to the three body problem, uh, potentially to take into the game to help him solve the game, because apparently, Wei himself does not actually play the game. This part's pretty interesting. Wong logs back into 3-Body and realizes that not a whole lot has changed from the first level to the second level. But he meets up with Isaac Newton, who is in a sword fighting duel, Um, and he also meets a guy named Von Neumann. Von Neumann basically has this idea for a giant computing device to be created using humans. Uh, where you can feed in very basic information, but if you have up to 30 million humans all in this kind of layout formation, and he proceeds to describe, you know, the basic systems of a computer, the CPU, the RAM, the hard drive, things like that. Uh, but by feeding basic information to, you know, one or two people, it will pass down the line to apparently solve these kind of vast you know, vast technical problems. Uh, I don't fully understand how this will help them solve anything in 3-Body, but apparently they do, and they proceed to create this thing. The Emperor of this new era, who Wong still thinks has the same eyes as King Zhou and the Pope from the previous eras, uh, decides to go ahead and set this whole thing up for von Neumann, because von Neumann says that by using this information, they can accurately predict the movements of the three suns at any given point in time to know when the stable and chaotic eras will happen. They fire up this giant human computer and they have a couple of problems early on. And to deal with the faulty hardware, they end up just killing the people who were part of that component and replacing them. The computer program itself runs for over a year and apparently at this point has fully been able to calculate when there will be chaotic and stable eras. However, at the moment that they predicted the that a new long stable era was about to begin, a messenger comes running in to tell them that there's been a mistake in the calculations. And as the sun is rising on what they think is a new stable era, the gravity of the planet all of a sudden lessens to the point where things begin to float because apparently all three suns are now in alignment And their gravities are acting, you know, in a straight line on the planet, which is causing the gravity on the planet to seem like it's less because everything is being drawn towards the three suns. So Wong witnesses everything begin to float, including all of the 30 million people who were gathered for this supercomputer. Everything, including the buildings and stuff, begins to break apart, and essentially the civilization is destroyed. And the message appears saying that civilization number 184 was destroyed by a tri-solar syzygy. Right after Wong logs out of this session, he actually receives a phone call from someone claiming to be an administrator for 3-Body. And he's actually invited to a gathering of 3-Body players. Wong assumed that at this meeting of 3-Body players, there would be a considerable amount of people. You know, he figured that most gaming conventions, there's a lot of people, but there's actually only 7 people at this meeting and Pan Han is actually the one who organized this event. Basically, he opens it up for them to kind of ask some questions and stuff, and the first thing that Wong wants to know is if 3-Body is actually only a game. This is where everything takes a serious twist, if you will, uh, because Pan explains that the world of 3-Body, or Trisolaris, actually does exist. The planet is real, and the things like... The inhabitants' ability to dehydrate and things like that are real. He explains they don't exactly know what tricellarians look like, since it's very likely that their appearance and things change with each cycle of their civilization. He also explains that the von Neumann computer experiment was a real thing on Trisolaris, that it probably was also much more efficient than if it were formed by humans because they don't actually know the capabilities fully of Trisolarans. You know, if they were faster or could communicate in much different ways than humans, it would actually have been much more of a success. Panhan then asks the group what... They think of Trisolarans potentially joining the human race on Earth to escape, you know, the tragedy that is Trisolaris that continues to ruin their race and destroy them with all these cycles. Many of them would actually prefer the Triselarians come as they cannot stand humanity anymore. Wong claims that this is his thoughts as well, even though he's kind of just going along with the general consensus of the group. A few of the members explain that they do not want trisolarans to join the human race. They use a really kind of fancy, smart people explanation as to why they think it would be a bad thing. And they are immediately told to leave and that their IDs would be deleted from 3-body and they would, you know, never be able to play again. So after this meeting, Wong logs back into the game again and sees that things have changed considerably this time both because of the uh, trisolar syzygy, I can't even say that freaking word, that word's crazy, Uh, which had destroyed pretty much everything on the planet, and because of where society is already at in terms of technology this time. He actually ends up running into Einstein. Again, I'm pretty confused, maybe someone can explain to me if these are other players, or if these are... NPCs because it just seems very convenient if they're players, that he always runs right into them. Or if they're NPCs, it also seems very convenient that he runs into, you know, the quote-unquote smartest people of each age. Einstein asks if Wong has noticed the moon that um, Trisolaris now has. And apparently during the Trisolar Syzygy, they called it the Great Rip, which actually tore the planet and tore a chunk out of the planet which then started to orbit the planet and re you know made itself nice and round due to gravity and so uh, now is a moon of the planet at this stage in the game too Wong is also told that there were up to 12 planets potentially in the solar system of the trisolaris so there potentially was 12 planets just like trisolaris revolving around these three suns and 11 of them have been consumed And it's presumed that Trisolaris will also be consumed at some point due to the, you know, erratic and chaotic nature of the way it revolves around and in between these three suns. Wong says that he has a solution potentially to the, you know, three body problem. And he presents them with, uh, what's his name, Wei Chang's, you know, evolving algorithm that he had borrowed from him basically and essentially these the folks of this civilization kind of laugh because they say you know this is a good theory but there's already been even better ones come up with so this theory is kind of silly and we've decided at this point that there is no solution to the three body problem it cannot be solved therefore you know we're just essentially waiting for our planet to be destroyed and we need to come up with a Better solution, basically. This civilization has already predicted their demise, essentially, in this one. When they are destroyed, there's a new message in the game that says that since this civilization discovered there is no solution to the three-body problem, the best thing they can do is head for the stars and find a new home. So Wong actually logs off, but he ends up logging back in a very short time later. And he receives a message that says the situation is urgent. The three body servers are about to be shut down and the three body is going to the final scene. This time when Wong actually gets into the game, everything is pretty dramatically changed yet again. And he realizes there are like hundreds of millions of people or Trisalarans gathered together in this one area that he has spawned in. And he also notices there are many stars in the sky above the planet this time. And one of the members nudges him and asks Copernicus why he's so late. And apparently three civilizations have passed, even though he just logged out and logged right back in. Again, I don't fully understand the passage of time in-game versus, you know, in real time. I mean, I kind of understand now because, you know, the game... The outcome is already sort of decided, therefore it's kind of just nudging members towards something, you know, but it still doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. The stars in the sky above the planet are actually ships. That's the Trisalaran space fleet, essentially, that's going to be used for them to leave the planet. The ships can only travel at one tenth the speed of light. And this is where when people say that this book is considered a hard sci-fi. I would say this is kind of what they're talking about so even though it is sci-fi there are aliens there are other planets there is space travel there's all these kinds of things they still have to abide by the actual laws of physics right so these ships will have the you know time will pass for them to travel to a new star system and things like that this is sort of grounded in as much reality I guess as we can place on it versus something like Star Wars or something where they disappear and they immediately reappear however many light years away so there are hard set rules that are followed in this book and I do really appreciate that they explain that the fleet is headed to the nearest star system to them which is about four light years away and Wong think that Wong thinks that's interesting because the nearest Star to Earth is also apparently four light years away. As they watch, the fleet actually all fires up their engines and leaves the planet altogether. And more text appears saying basically that the game is over. And if the players are true to the cause, they should go to this Earth Trisolaran meetup, which is the uh, the ETO as we will find out here in a little bit, that it's the uh, Earth Trisolaran organization. So Wong is able to attend this meeting of the ETO. And while he's there, he actually hears Pan Han telling another member that he is the one who killed Shen Yufei. And there's a lot of kind of rhetoric talk about the sort of infighting that goes on with this group in the ETO. Because um, you have a couple different thought processes that go on within this greater organization. Uh, we learn a little bit more about those later on, and you learn a lot more about them later on in the series. Uh, yeah, when Sia shows up, and it turns out she is the actually the leader of the entire group, basically. She shouts out to all of them, eliminate human tyranny, and she actually calls Pan Han forward. And Pon claims that Yeah is actually an Adventist, and uh, this is kind of one of those organizations within the organizations. Basically, the... The whole group believes the same thing, but they believe it in different ways. Uh, we find out a little bit later that that's kind of whether they see the Trisalarans as, you know, just friends or gods or what have you. Pon says that he only killed Shen because she actually shot at him first and that he was actually there to kill her husband, Wei Chang, since his work on the three body problem basically meant that if he were to solve the three body problem, then their lord and savior wouldn't need to come to Earth. Yeah, also talks to Pawn about him having contact with their lord and savior, but not passing any information on to the rest of the group. Basically, he's kind of a scumbag within the organization. Yeah, basically tells him that he kind of fucked up at this point. And this lady walks forward out of the crowd, it grabs Pawn from behind and snaps his neck right in the middle of the entire gathering which is insane. Uh, several men just kind of step forward and drag him off of the out from in the middle of everyone be, like it was nothing, which is also pretty crazy to me. Yeah, also directly addresses Wong and lets him know that his nano research, nanomaterial research is one of the first things that their lord and savior wants to be eliminated from human technology. She kind of then regresses into the rest of the story from Red Coast Base, where she left off last time. We jump back over to Yaz's perspective at Red Coast Base. We're kind of filled in a little bit more about why she was recruited by Lei Zicheng and uh, Yang Weining. Basically, what I kind of gather from it is that it's a paper that she wrote about how the the sun could be used to amplify radio waves. Essentially, it's pretty. Basically, the stuff's way over my head that they're kind of talking about here. It's a lot of scientific talk and things that I don't really understand, so I'm not going to pretend to. But essentially what happened is one of these guys, I think it was... I don't remember if it was Lei, Chang, or Yang that uh, recruited her because of the paper, but it's because he wanted to actually use the paper as if it was his own theory, not hers, is kind of the way I understand it. Essentially what Yeah has kind of figured out is that you could use the sun to amplify the technically weak radio signal coming from Red Coast Base we're actually informed too that she tries this basically without anybody else's knowledge she sends a signal towards the sun you know sending a transmission towards the sun essentially to use the sun's uh, solar energy I believe or something to that effect to amplify the signal as it is sent out into space and she assumes that it failed But the narrator actually informs us that she might not have realized it, but at that very moment, her message is rapidly traveling through the universe at the speed of light. And anybody who would see that message would basically be able to triangulate and know that it came from our sun. And at that point in time, it's described as our sun being the brightest star in that section of the universe, basically, due to that message. Yeah, actually ends up marrying Yang Wei Ning, you know, one of those guys who initially recruited her. He actually loses some standing at the base because he married her, since she is highly seen as a, you know, counter revolutionary and a reactionary thinker, you know, kind of from her past and her father's past and things like that. Interestingly enough, yeah, actually comes across a radio signal that Red Coast Base is receiving that looks like there might actually be some intelligence behind it. They kind of describe the signal as, you know, having some form of shape that's not just normal background noise of the universe. So once she uses the technology to actually decode this thing, surprisingly enough, it says do not answer, do not answer, do not answer, which the first time I was listening to this really caught me off guard and it was kind of an unsettling thing if I can be honest Um, I'm not 100% sure why it was weird but just thinking about a message coming through space that is also a warning you know the very first message that Earth has ever received from space and the first thing it is is a warning so it's very bizarre to say the least There's a little bit more to the message that further kind of explains that the person, person I say in air quotes, the being who sent the message says that they are a pacifist on their world. And they basically say that Earth is in luck, that they are the one who found the message, because if any other, you know, one of their members had found the message and finds out where the planet is that the message came from, they will certainly, you know, set up to invade earth essentially and it follows up again with do not answer do not answer do not answer basically because this being received the message first they were able to you know stop it dead in its tracks before before the information was triangulated as to where the message itself came from but if earth were to send another message now that the planet is listening they would easily figure out where the message came from this time this also I should mention all takes place about nine years after. Yeah. When Sia had sent her first message out into space. So she kind of does some quick math and realizes that the message came from about four light years away. I don't fully understand this part. Um, she says that from the information, I don't know if there's more information that we aren't kind of built in on as the listener, but she basically figures out the whole thing about Trisolaris, the planet and the alien race who lives on the planet. And their need to find a new place to live, basically, because their planet sucks. After she figures all of this out, yeah, proceeds to kind of sneak, quote-unquote. And I, I put that in quotes because she's not she is being sneaky about what she's doing, but she's doing it in front of a lot of people. Because nobody really gives a shit at this point what she's doing. It kind of talks quickly about guards and stuff seeing her, but not really questioning what she's doing and things like that. But what she does is she actually ends up setting up another transmission and she aims it in the exact same way that she had before, nine years before when she sent out her first transmission. She sends this message out that basically says, Come here. I will help you conquer this world. Our civilization is no longer capable of solving its own problems. We need your force to intervene. You know, basically she kind of condemns all of humanity with her... (laughs) message that she sends out. But she sends this message in secret. No one even records the fact that she sent this new message. And right after that, we jump over to find out that Yeah, is also pregnant. We jump back to current time as Yeah kind of finishes up telling this story to the entire gathering of people actually at the ETO. She explains to Wong that the Tricelerians fear the nanomaterial research that he does. They fear that with this nanomaterial research, humans could actually end up working themselves towards a space elevator type of structure, and build up a sort of near-Earth defense system for if the Tricellarians tried to come to Earth, they would actually be able to stop them from invading. Shortly after she explains this, someone kicks the doors open to their meeting room, and it's actually the military, led by the one and only uh Shi. I failed to mention this earlier, but at this meeting there's also kind of a sculpture setup of the three body trisolaris suns type of thing with three spheres rotating you know erratically around each other in the middle of the room and as soon as the military breaks in three people from the crowd run forward and grab each one of them grabs one of these spheres and holds it in front of them and they claim that one of them is actually a small nuclear explosive device basically they try to blackmail Dasha and his soldiers to get them to stand down and leave the E.T.O. alone and carry out, you know, their mission, quote unquote, that they would like to move forward with Dasha ends up pulling a seriously badass move once they figure out which of the three is actually a small nuclear device, and it happens to be the same girl who assassinated Pan Han, who is holding the real nuclear device. Dasha makes a kind of comment about her mother, I believe it is, enough so that she will drop her guard and allows him to shoot the device out of her hand. By doing this, it causes a small detonation explosion, which only kills her. I I don't fully understand all of it, but it basically it sets off the explosive device in a way that will not trigger it in a nuclear fashion, but triggers the, you know, small outer explosives to detonate in this lady's hand turning her into essentially like paste a small kind of shootout ensues between the ETO members and the military members, but it's quickly kind of brought to an end. I believe this is probably due to the fact that not many civilians are allowed to have weapons in this area. You know, this would be a much different story if it took place in the United States, (laughs) because most likely everyone on both sides would have had weapons to fire with. Yawensiya is taken into custody by the end of this whole thing and Dasha ends up suffering serious radiation poisoning because of how close he was to the nuclear device that he set off again it wasn't set off in a full nuclear explosion but obviously there were you know radiation and things like that that were triggered when it was set off we jump over to Yawensiya being interrogated and she actually admits to killing two people while at Red Coast Base she admits that she killed both Commissar Lei Zicheng and her husband, Yang Weining. We find out that Lei Zicheng actually received the message as well that Ye had received. He knew that she planned on replying to the message and he didn't trust her very much, but he doesn't realize she already replied by the time he calls her into his office to question her. Lei tells Yeah that he thinks she's actually an enemy of the people. And up to this point, and even still, honestly, I have a hard time figuring out who is actually good and who is actually bad in terms of what they are actually doing. The conflict itself seems so insane to me between the, the revolution and the infighting. It seems like such a detrimental thing over such trivial matters that I really honestly can't wrap my head around it. Now granted, I think that's honestly just human nature to fight over incredibly trivial and menial things so I fully understand it in as far as th- the fact that they're fighting I just don't understand why yeah when Sia very quickly comes up with a plan to get rid of Leza Chang because she knows that if he spreads the information about the message that was received things will go downhill very quickly it goes into great detail explaining that there is a common problem that occurs at the base over this one particular cliff where they have to use grounding equipment. And apparently the, the way it's attached down below the clay level, the grounding rod and grounding equipment often will be faulty, basically. And someone has to go over the cliff edge to fix the grounding problem most of the time. She actually created the problem in a different spot, but the way that it looks to anybody that's seeing it kind of on the computer or on the readouts is a grounding problem still the same. So one guy goes down to check it out and can't find a problem. So Lei, Lei Zicheng a decides he will fix it himself. And she was kind of betting on this, that he would go over the cliff and fix it himself. So he ties himself off with a very strong wire rope and heads down. Yeah is planning on cutting the rope while he's over the edge. And the way it'll break, since she's gonna use like a hacksaw blade, it'll basically snap almost as if it snapped on its own. But before she's able to cut it, Yang Weining, her husband, comes and says he's going to go down and help Lei fix the problem so that, you know, one guy doesn't have to do it by himself. Yeah, tries to convince Yang that if he's going to go over the cliff, he should use a different rope than Lei. And she goes to fetch him one. But when she gets back, he has already tied himself off to the same rope that Lei Chang uses. So once she gets back, she realizes that they're both on their way back up to the edge of the cliff. So she goes ahead and cuts the rope with both Lei and Yang, her husband, tied off to it. Basically causing both of them to fall to their death. We jump back over to... I'm assuming it's back in time to while Yeah was actually at Red Coast Base. And both Lei and Yang, their, dre- their deaths were treated as accidents. Just like Yeah had hoped for. This entire part, I don't fully... It's a kind of a long... Section in which yeah, talks to some of the local civilians around Radar Peak. And they had actually visited uh, Red Coast Base, wanting to talk to some quote unquote smart people and talk, ask them some questions because something to do with colleges being opened back up for anyone, kind of general admissions without needing a letter of recommendation. We get a couple kind of quick time skips. Yeah, talking with the locals and tutoring them and teaching them about science and physics and things like that. And we also see Yeah go into labor. And while she's on the base, and the base cannot take care of her while this happens. So she actually nearly dies. And she also kind of goes into psychosis at this point, as far as I can tell and has a vision of herself being burned by three sons. There's a considerable amount of time in which yeah, hangs out in the village with her new baby and the villagers, and the villagers kind of help her take care of the baby since she's kind of shunned from Red Coast Base, I'm assuming at this point. She also goes and ends up finding the four female Red Guards who had killed her father back in the day. And they still essentially are like hardcore Red Guards. one of them has actually died, and they died basically <laughs> in service of the Red Guards. It's it's kind of a uh, it's pretty sad, is the way I'll put it. Uh, the The biggest thing to gather from this whole kind of segment is that Yeah ends up meeting up with Mike Evans, this guy who's planting trees in an area uh, trying to save a specific species of bird. He is annoyed at kind of how shitty people are because he's trying to save this species of bird. And all people want to question him is, for is what it, what good it does humanity. And he hates the fact that you have to be helping other people to be seen, you know, as it being a good thing. He's kind of a diehard environmentalist. He also was left a fortune of money, I believe, from his family's oil company once his father passed. Like, tons and tons of money. Yeah, eventually tells Mike Evans of the Tricelarans and of the message that she sent. And Mike sees this as a great opportunity to start the ETO, the Earth Tricelerin Earth Organization. And he will essentially fund it using his family's money. And the goal of this would be to allow the Tricelerins to come take over the planet and destroy humanity, which he sees as only destroying Earth anyways. Evans uses one of the ships, I'm assuming from his family's company. It's... I'm assuming it's a converted oil tanker, but it's called Judgment Day, and they use this basically as their base of operations. And they I'm assuming they do that so that they can stay out in the ocean, which is probably much harder to find them than it would be if they had a base set up on land. Evans now is able to be in contact with Trisolaris, and we'll find out here after a little while why that is. Um, And he finds out that it'll take about 450 years For the Trisalarans to actually reach Earth in order to conquer it. It goes into a little bit of the explanations as to once the ETO is formed, the different factions that form within the organization. Some of them treating the Trisalarans more as like a religious figure. Some of them simply wanting Trisalarans to come teach people how to live harmoniously. You know, basically no one can ever agree on anything. Jumping back into Yawensia being interrogated, we find out that Mike Evans lied to her. He had decided that the destruction of the human race was his ultimate goal. She simply wanted the aliens to come to Earth and kind of reform humanity, or at least help them, you know, solve their problems. The interrogator asks, yeah, if the Tricelarians have sent anything to the planet that's kind of above the technology of humans. And yeah, explains that the trisolarans actually shot two protons to Earth uh, that actually arrived two years ago. The protons are what's being used to seal off the advancement of science before the trisolarans arrive. Wong is able to actually listen in on this interrogation of yeah, talking with one of the other scientists that's listening in on the conversation. It sounds like they kind of compare the trisolarans being able to shoot two protons to earth which is four light years away as the equivalent of someone on earth being able to shoot a mosquito on pluto with a gun is kind of how i understand it which would take some serious obvious you know accuracy and crazy science basically um and the stuff that they talk about here they talk about a lot of stuff different dimensions on micro and macro scale and a lot of stuff that's way over my head and honestly kind of give me a, gives me a little bit of a headache they use this information and actually attend a meeting with a lot of military leadership from around the world the goal of this meeting is obviously to talk about now the threat of the alien race also now knowing about judgment day they know that they it most likely contains a lot of information about the trisalarians that they need to get a hold of basically so now we kind of get the divide of, in people also. People who want the trisolarans to come and people who want to stop the trisolarans from coming and obviously taking over humanity. They know they have 450 years to set up plans to stop an alien invasion, but they don't necessarily know what they are going to need to do to stop this invasion. Also with the information that human research and science has been sort of halted in its tracks is also kind of detrimental as well. There's a lot of conversation about how to stop the ship Judgment Day while also being able to retrieve information off of it. Obviously any standard tactics like, you know, jumping aboard or things like that is just going to lead the ETO to destroy any information before they're able to get a hold of it. So Dasha actually comes up with a plan to stop the ship while also being able to recover the information. It's kind of funny because he takes one of the general's cigars that's in the room and he really pisses a lot of people off just in the way he presents his information in the middle of this meeting. But basically what he wants to do is use Wong's nanomaterial and span it across the Panama Canal to essentially cut the ship into pieces as it passes through. The nanomaterial obviously being invisible to the naked eye but with it being such fine filaments that it will cut the ship in such a way that the ship obviously will come apart a lot of people will probably be killed but even if it were to cut into some of the computer components storing the data the data would easily be able to be recovered because of the you know such fine cuts that the nanomaterial would make and they are calling this thing the i believe they end up calling it the zither or the flying blade is kind of what Wong and Dasha refer to it as because of the way that it works, obviously, being able to cut stuff. What they end up doing is taking two pillars across the Panama Canal before Judgment Day gets there, and they span these invisible nanomaterial lines across them. Don't ask me how they do this. I don't fully understand it at all. But basically, they tighten these things And once the ship passes through them, it's freaking crazy because the only way they even realize it's working at first is on the front of the ship. There's probably a flag mast and some other, you know, radio equipment or whatever. And they see, you know, this flag mast fall in half. Then you eventually see it cut through this guy on the decks. He's using a hose and the hose gets cut. And then this guy gets cut in half. And he falls kind of apart before he even realizes that he was cut in half. And eventually, as the ship passes through them, the nanomaterials cut into the engines, obviously causing the engines to kind of grenade into pieces, thus halting the ship in its tracks. It's freaking wild. We jump over from Judgment Day being destroyed back over to yeah being interrogated again, and the interrogator asking her kind of why she thinks the Trisalarians would be able to help us. The interrogator also informs her that Evans was killed during the operation of the Zither, and that they captured over 28 gigabytes of data off of the ship, which includes messages as well. It seems to me like they allow Yeah to read some of these captured messages, and at this point the book kind of... Uh, basically melds from humans to Tricelerin perspective, if I can put it that way. So this is the first real, as the listener, we are now in the heads and minds of an actual Tricelerin. So it's a melding of both, yeah, reading the messages, as well as the actual perspective of a Tricelerin being. It gets a little muddy here in terms of being able to tell what is from what perspective, so I will probably screw a lot of this up, but I'm going to do my best to explain it. Basically, we find out that on Trisolaris, the radio stations, quote-unquote, that are receiving messages from space, you know, there are Trisolarians doing the same thing as humans, basically, listening for other intelligent life in the universe. And the listener who received the message that Sia had actually sent he basically has the same reaction as yeah, when Sia had when she received the first message from space. Uh, <laughs> his computer equipment kind of does the same thing that Earth's did. It's a very kind of, uh, how do I say it, um, parallel universe type of situation, essentially. But we're learning all of this from the Trisalarans, which is kind of wild, right? So this is full, now there's actual like, full-on 100% aliens in the story, okay? This listener, it's actually very interesting, kind of shares similar feelings to humanity. And shortly after finding out about Earth, this listener decides they are kind of in love with Earth. They love the idea of Earth where it's always a stable era and humans are allowed to kind of thrive and survive and advance, you know. Unlike the way Trisalarans live where they're going back and forth between stable and chaotic eras people are always being hydrated and dehydrated and basically obviously you know their planet sucks it is interesting though to have this idea of these aliens being so similar to humans though in which even some of them have feelings like humans might actually have which this is a very interesting concept in this story and i i freaking love it there's a little bit of information about how architecture and things like that work on trisolaris Again, these are kind of melded ideas from the way the messages and the data are written versus how the Trisalaran, you know, seeing it from the Trisalaran's perspective. Because we get things like, we don't know what Trisalaran's look like and things like that. But we also kind of get this information about this listener not passing this information on in the correct way. And the princeps, basically the ruler, I'm assuming of all of trisolaris. The princess, the, not princess, princess gets this information because obviously many listening posts around the planet receive the information at the same time, I believe. But the listener who responded with the do not answer message was the first and only one to respond without actually telling the princeps about the information. So he, as well as all of his kind of uh, leadership are brought under scrutiny for this. And basically it's, pretty messed up (laughs) Um, all of them are like it talks about them being dehydrated and just thrown into fires to be burned Uh, it trisolaris just sounds like a terrible place to live if i'm being honest however the listener who replied to earth basically tells the princeps that he doesn't want to see trisolarians take over earth because At least Earth seems like they have some meaning for living, whereas on Trisolaris, there's basically no meaning to their lives. You know, they dehydrate, they rehydrate. All they're trying to do is figure out how to survive through another stable or chaotic era. They have very little in the way of, you know, art or entertainment or anything like that because it's all solely based around figuring out ways of surviving. We then jump forward uh, 85,000 tri hours, I believe is how it's put, which is about eight and a half Earth years. And the Princeps calls a meeting about their fleet, which they have actually sent towards Earth. Uh, It's very interesting because in their society, they also have like leaders of different, you know, there's a science leader and a health leader and a... I don't know, traffic leader. Basically, there are very selective leaders that he talks to in each of these meetings. This is where they come up with the concept of now that Earth most likely knows the Trisalarians are heading towards it, that they will be able to come up with an answer to that, right? With their technology. They talk about how quickly humans were able to go from hunter-gatherers to agriculture and then from agriculture to industry. Basically saying that humans' capability of advancing their technology in short amounts of time actually far exceeds even trisolarans' abilities. This is probably due to the fact that trisolarans are often wiped out, you know, and have to be put to sleep or dehydrated so often. But even though trisolaran technology is very, very advanced, it took them an extremely long time to get to that point. Whereas Earth, you know, makes leaps and bounds in technology in very short amount of time, which actually worries the Trisalarans. Trisalarans also actually think that if they can kind of show humans miracles, quote unquote, that humans will actually start to worship them in a religious way. And this will get, you know, many humans on their side to help kind of pave the way for Trisalarans to make it to the planet. This is where the tri come up with a way to actually show humans miracles in order to kind of speed this process up. And this is where we learn about Project Sofon. This is the idea of taking a proton and unfolding it. Because even though a proton obviously is very, very small, the idea of unfolding it into multiple dimensions can make it very, very large. This whole part... um really gives me a headache and it's a lot of things that i have no idea how necessarily even to explain they talk about being able to fold things into nine and apparently trisalarians are able to control things in nine of the 11 possible dimensions okay and i don't really understand what that means all i know is for the next little while the book talks about them Unfolding this proton, right? And at first they screw up, they they unfold it into like one dimension, which turns it into like a huge thread that's almost infinitely long. You know, it's tons of light years long, but it's so small that it barely even exists, right? So the idea that what they want to do, though, is try to unfold the proton into two dimensions. And by doing so, they could essentially put coding on a proton itself turning it into a supercomputer then it could be refolded back down to proton size uh they during this process they unfold one into three dimensions which actually opens up what seems like almost a portal um they see like eyes in the sky and this thing tries to almost form itself to redirect the suns, rays, you know it forms itself into a mirror basically and redirects itself onto the capital of Trisolaris to try to destroy it It, it's wild. This whole part kind of reminds me of the Dark Tower in which, you know the idea of universes or dimensions existing even on like grains of sand and every time you were walking through a desert every time you kick a you know footprint full of grains of sand you could potentially be destroying you know who knows how much intelligent life in who knows how many universes by doing something so simple they kind of broach this subject a little bit at this point but it's basically it's just really trippy and weird and stresses me out to be honest once they succeed in unfolding the proton into two dimensions they basically put it around the entire planet as almost like a huge barrier basically but that is so thin, it doesn't technically, I I don't know, I, I don't really know how to explain it. All I know is they basically unfold this thing huge, then they put all this information on the inside of it, and then they refold it back down to where it's basically this incredibly, incredibly powerful artificial intelligence supercomputer that can also be made the size of a proton, which would obviously be nearly undetectable, right? The idea is that they need four sofons built before they can do anything with them. So once they complete one, they're easily able to complete the other three. Now, the idea is that they send a Sophon 1 and 2 towards Earth. These two Sophons will hide in, like, the particle accelerators of humans. Okay, this is also where things are explained that, kind of like the pool ball experiment from earlier in the book, the Sophons basically will go in and disrupt these experiments, so, the humans will never be able to fully unlock ways of interacting with matter, you know, on this, uh, such a small scale, basically, right? Down to the atoms and protons and neutrons and things like that. We also find out that the sophons are what's responsible for Wong seeing the countdown on his vision, because we find out that the sophons can basically form you know, the text and things like that on humans' vision down to the microscopic scale. We also find out that it was the Sophons that were responsible for Wong viewing the universe flickering because it was able to actually unfold itself again into essentially a 2D structure all the way around the planet to show this kind of flickering of the solar radiation. And we also find out that because of the way the Sophons are designed, Sophon 1 and 2 basically can multiply themselves now as many times as they need to while they're on Earth. But not only that, they can communicate back to Trisolaris with Sophons 3 and 4 near instantaneously, now giving Trisolaris a direct line of contact with Earth, which is kind of, you know, when Evans was receiving information and things like that, this is most likely how they were doing it. We come back to, yeah, when Sia kind of finishing up, Reading this information from TriSolaris. And now that the entire race essentially is aware of the Sophons, I'm assuming they got this information off of Judgment Day. Judgment Day was probably storing information on the fact that the Sophons were here. Uh, TriSolaris sends one final message to all of humanity at the same time. And the final message just says, Your bugs. We end up jumping over to Dasha, taking... He meets up with uh, Wong and Ding, which I think was the pool guy, the pool ball guy from earlier. And they're basically getting drunk. They're, like, pretty sure that humanity is completely fucked because of the Sophons, and there's really nothing they can do about it, right? Because the Sophons are what's going to not allow them, essentially, to further their technology in order to defeat the Trisolarans now before they come to Earth. (laughs) I really like this part because Dasha takes these two. <laughs> he he, uh, he calls them huge pussies because they want to believe that everything is hopeless, right? He takes them out to a bunch of farm fields and has them look at these fields and there's actually a ton of locusts in this wheat field that they go to. And he asks them, is the, the gap between humans and these locusts as big as the gap between humans and Tricelerin in technology. Because he says, think about it, you know, as much as humans have tried to get rid of these locusts, there's nothing we can do about them, right? They're still here. We've tried so many ways to get rid of the bugs, and yet they still remain. If humans are bugs and the Tricelerins are going to try to stamp us out, maybe we do still stand a chance. We get one final cut in the book, of uh, Yawin yeah, Sia visiting Red Coast Base and Radar Peak one more time. And she watches the sunset from Radar Peak, calling it her sunset and the sunset of humanity. And this is kind of where the book wraps up. And I am, I'm pretty pumped to listen to the rest of the series because, oh uh, yeah, this one, it got its hooks in me deep. It's so full of kind of twists and turns and just things you're not really expecting to happen. This also contains some, to me, profoundly kind of deep subjects, in my opinion, none of which that I can really speak to very strongly because I'm not that smart. Um, But all I know is that a lot of these, the ideas in this book kind of hit home rather strongly for me, surprisingly enough. Um, The idea of humans needing a bit of a reset because of the way we treat our planet, uh, the way we treat each other. You know, it's, there's some profoundly deep topics in this, some very psychological subjects as well as, you know, philosophical subjects that are broached, wrapped up in a really nice kind of easy-to-swallow pill. On the surface, this story is very simple, and obviously if anybody stuck with me through this entire recording, I greatly appreciate it because this has taken me an embarrassingly long time to record, um... I probably didn't need to go into as much detail as I did and I actually plan on I'll I'll remedy this in the future but this was a deep topic for me I'm kind of bummed out that I couldn't have a discussion with somebody over it because I'm sure there's a lot of stuff I missed I'm sure there's a lot of stuff I glossed over that probably should have been discussed in more detail Uh, but this is my my attempt at still continuing this podcast and this quest on my own so if you stuck with me this long I extremely appreciate it. I really do. And I am so grateful for you listening to me ramble on and on and on. (laughs) Thank you everyone for listening. I really appreciate it. And I really hope to catch you in the next one.